Good morning again. It is good to be with you this morning and to have the privilege of opening your word. Uh, my name is John. I work with the ministry on campus at the campus of K-State called Reformed University Fellowship. It's the um, college ministry of our denomination and I'm thankful to be here opening your word, the God's word with you today. If you have a Bible nearby, there should be one in the pew if you didn't bring one with you or you want to turn on your device and turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to consider the first 14 verses of the book of Galatians. Uh, the title for this sermon, Live Together, Die Alone. I had somebody ask me, or mentioned this week that that sounded like a threat. Um, it's not intended as such. It's actually a reference to the TV show Lost. If you remember that from a while ago, um, in, in our household, uh, Lost has that, that place etched in our memories that I think it was the last TV show that we would record with VHS, um, which was, was late for <laughs> we were late adopters, but uh, it was, I think it was the last show that we regularly push record on the VHS thing so that we could watch it after the kids went to bed um, and watch it uninterrupted. It was that kind of thing for us. But it's a TV show about a plane crash um, on this mysterious island and the, the group of people that find themselves stuck in this place. And one of the themes of the show was that, live together or die alone. In other words, they saw the need to work together to, to minimize the infighting and division that would arise in such a situation because they were also different in order to basically simply survive. Um, as we turn to Galatians chapter two, it, it, that, that idea highlights one of the themes of the book of Galatians actually. Uh, Galatians, as, as we're gonna see momentarily, is really is written to a group of churches that were facing an internal threat that came from the outside but became an internal threat. The threat was, what is the gospel and what does it mean for us to live according to this gospel? What does it mean for us to live in community with one another? What does it mean for us to live together based on the truth of the scriptures? That the threat that came in was what Paul, the writer of these words, at one point refers to as another gospel, some other message other than the message about Jesus Christ that unifies his people. And so he's writing to combat that and to um, bring correction to people that desperately need it because everything is at stake. So I want to turn your attention to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read for us the first 14 verses. If you would be willing to follow along, that'd be great. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking, along, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false prophets secretly brought in, brought in who slipped in to spy out your, our freedom that we have in Christ, Christ Jesus, so that they might, excuse me, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me to, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace that was given to me received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the, t- and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray as we consider these words together. Father in heaven, the beauty of the church is that it extends throughout time. It knows no geographical or nationalistic bounds. Father, it is for whoever would believe. The call goes out. We pray that that call would go out even this morning through this, this consideration of your word. Would you speak powerfully according to your spirit and apply the truths of your word to our hearts deeply this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. My wife and I have a friend who uh, had a dog when we lived in St. Louis, had a dog named Max. I'll tell you up front, Max was a strange dog. You see, Max was what's called a feral hound, which our friend was, was quick to point out was, was an ancient breed of dog dating back to the pharaohs. She claimed that Moses even probably had a pet feral hound at one point. But if you, if you don't know what a feral hound is, it's, it's a strange beast. It's got a pointy, sharp nose. Its eyes are situated strangely on its head. They're, they're relatively thin. It's, it had a, Max had a brown and orangish coat, except for the tip of his tail, which was white. And Max was weird looking, and he was, it was weird. We dog, set for, we dog sat for him on more than one occasion. It was strange to get to know Max. He was not a cuddly lap dog. He was tall and thin. He had short hair, his gangly legs. Even when he had the freedom to roam our backyard at his will, he sort of looked like a deer on ice, sort of pouncing and jumping up and down in these awkward positions. His back was strangely arched. He was a funny looking dog and we didn't quite know what to do with him. And even his personality was a bit strange, though I'm not sure that that's typical of the breed or not. But then my friend said, you have to come see him race. And I thought, okay. And so she took, I went along with her take to outside of town to this, this open park area where they had a pulley system set up that would pull a rabbit. It wasn't a real rabbit, it was this piece of fur. It was built to pull it and the dogs would race and, and they would, the owners would get to time their dogs to see which ones were fastest and they had different heats. And so our friend had this special collar for Max and she would get down on the ground right next to him and the, the, the buzzer would beep and she would hold his collar and it was a release, quick release collar so that when, when she could say go, She'd pull back, and Max would take off running. And I tell you that because it was a beautiful thing to see this strange-looking, awkward dog do what he was made to do. Because this dog was bred to race. This dog was bred to hunt. He's a a sight hound, which means he doesn't hunt by smell. He actually hunts by those eyes. So the fact that his eyes were positioned on his head the way that they were with his long snout was on purpose, so to speak. And to see this dog race and run like that after that pretend rabbit, everything clicked into place. You see, because when he's sitting in our living room and in our backyard with his strangely arched back, you realize that his back was, was, was built that way, so to speak, designed that way by our creator, so that he could elongate his body when he ran, and he could run. 
And he could run and run and run. That's what he was made for. That's what he was built for. The white tip of his tail, in fact, was made to stick up so that it would be easier to see him against the desert sand as he hunted rodents in the desert. But to see him do this was unbelievable. Because you, all of a sudden, all the pieces fit together. All his awkwardness was gone. All the weirdness of, this, of his breed was gone. You could see that every part of this beast was made to do what we were watching him do, to run, to chase, and to hunt. You see, this is a picture of freedom, being made to do what he was meant to do. The Apostle Paul connects freedom with the gospel here in, in, in the, I believe it's in the fourth verse, if you look, look back with me there. He says, because false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul, Paul is concerned about the truth of the gospel, but in particular in the book of Galatians, he's concerned about the freedom that believers have in Christ Jesus. And we'll see this throughout the passage, I pray, this morning. It's, it's not the freedom from all constraint. It's not the freedom from anything external to us as if, we, as if our goal is to live on our own. But it's the freedom in Christ Jesus to live as we were made to live. To do what we were made to do. To be who God made us to be. That sin has marred and kept us away from. And through the work of Jesus, we are brought back to the place where we can learn how to live again the way that we were made to live. That's what's at stake for us. We often live in that awkward place, right, of, of the arched back dog and the weird things that don't make sense, the pieces that don't seem to fit together. And yet the promise of the gospel is that through Jesus, we can become who we were made to be. Now, what's happening in, in Galatians, in the whole book of Galatians, and actually these 14 verses give us what we might call the narrative of what was happening in this, in these, among these churches. You see, the problem is Paul sees the gospel as this invitation to freedom. But as verses 4 and 5 tell us, others crept in and, and began to threaten this freedom. And Paul said, I need to confirm the gospel that I preach. And so he went to these, and his, his message indeed was confirmed and his message indeed was even defended in that last section. He's telling us that what had happened was, his message was that there is life in Jesus and Jesus came to set us free from the, this evil age, he says in the first few verses of this letter. And yet those have snuck into this church to say, well wait, but there's more to this. It's not just Jesus, that especially if you were entering the kingdom of God from outside and you were not Jewish by birth, you have to become Jewish first. In particular, that meant you had, men had to be circumcised. And also what we see by the end of the passage is that there were laws about who you ate with and how you ate that, and what you ate that also were applied. And so the message, instead of the message being whoever believes in Jesus might be saved, the message became something more like whoever believes in Jesus and becomes fully Jewish and maintains their Jewish identity, then you, you would be able to be saved. And Paul's message over and over again is no, 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 no. Because Jesus came to fulfill all of the Old Testament law and all of those rules and every, everything that came with it. He came to fulfill it and to complete it so that we, most of us I'm assuming are probably Gentiles by birth, so that we might know the freedom of the gospel as those throughout time and throughout space have known it as well. The gospel is about this kind of freedom, living as we were made to live, 
as God intended for us to be. So the question I want us to consider this morning, or some variation on this, is what does it look like for you and I to embrace this gospel of freedom? What does it mean for us to do this together? To live together in community with one another of varying backgrounds, varying specific convictions, varying ways of doing life and home and family and other things. How do we do this together? A few things I want us to, I want to draw your attention to. The first is, I want to say that the truth of the gospel, what it looks like for us to do this is to embrace the fact that the truth of the gospel is a public truth. Now, now what I mean by that, first of all, is, I want to get to by pointing to the first few verses of this section. Notice in verses 1 to 3 in particular, how many times you see the word I, Paul referencing himself. You see, at the end of chapter, by the end of chapter 1, he's recounting for the Galatians his own conversion and his own calling to ministry, how Jesus entered his life and changed it completely from night, day, night to day and brought him life again. And he continues on talking about his own life in verse 1. He says, then after 14 years, I went up. And then in verse 2, I went up because of revelation and set before them and so on. Um, the gospel that I proclaim there at the end of verse 3 and so on. Multiple times throughout these first verses, he's referencing himself. You see, to, to realize that living together means that the, or is in part because of the reality that the gospel is a public truth, means that the gospel is a personal reality for those who believe. Paul is not scared to reference his own life and his own experiences, as if to say, this has value for what I'm doing in this world. You see, the gospel is not a distant concept that he's describing here. It's, it's indeed what changed his life. Truth is something that we commit to, that each of us commits to. That's why the, the, the scriptures talk over and over again about belief. That's the fundamental question of the scriptures, is do you believe in Jesus? There's something deeply personal about that. Because when it comes to, to public truth, when it comes to the realities of the world in which we live, we find ourselves committing to truth, but we, we may even find ourselves arguing with truth. But that's because it is truth. Because we can't get around it. We can't work our way around it. We can't fashion our own truth, however hard we might try. And the reality of the gospel is that the truth is there for us. And the question is, do you believe? The truth of the gospel is far more than simple information. It's not data. It's not simple facts. It's something that we embrace, something that we commit to, something that changes us from the inside out. And Paul is indeed not scared to talk about it. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where a close friend, maybe even a, a family member, has surprised you with their abilities. Maybe you've been at a party and there's a lull in the party and there's a piano present and one of somebody you knew or that you thought you knew goes over and sits down and plays a beautiful tune and you just stand back and look at them and think, who are you? Where did you come from? Because I've known you for a while and I never knew this about you and you've been hiding this from me. We know that experience, don't we? We know the experience of somebody having this talent that would encourage us and at least, for the very least, entertain us, and they've been hiding it from us. There's a little bit of frustration with that, right? A little bit of frustration of like, why didn't you tell us this earlier? We would have loved to share this with you. The gospel is not just personal. It's also not a private matter for us. Now, in this text, Paul talks about approaching the leadership privately, and that's, that's, I'm not at odds with that when I say that the gospel is not private. What I mean when I say the gospel is not private is that the gospel is not a message 
solely for me as an individual to sit in and to think on by myself without any other human interaction about those truths. It is intended to be shared among us as the people of God. It is intended to be talked about. It is intended to be lived out together. It is, it is personal, but it is not private. Now, you have to understand, Paul literally had Jesus, the heavens open up, and Jesus, the risen Lord, talked to him from the heavens. If anybody could have said, it's about me and Jesus, it would have been somebody like Paul, because that was his experience of Jesus. And yet even for him, that's not his application of this. His application was, I must preach this message. Even to the point of approaching those in leadership and saying, I need to make sure that my message is legit, that I'm not crazy because I've sort of been off doing my thing because that's what Jesus told me to do, as he should have been. And yet even in that moment, he brings his message to these other, other believers and says, I'm on board. Right? Like, we're, we're not at odds with each other, right? The gospel is a public truth. It is, it is personal, but it is not private. Part of what I want you and me to see here this morning is that your story matters, beloved. The events of the last seven days of your life matter. We don't come to church to forget all of that. We don't come to church to pretend that we're not human, to pretend that we didn't have flat tires or sick kids or frustrating experiences from our bosses or from those who work for us. We don't come here to set those things aside because those things matter. That's a part of the truth of the gospel being applied to our lives. Where you're from, where you are, what, you're do, what you've done, where you're going, what you're doing now matters. Your story and the work of Jesus in your life, however insignificant that may feel to you right now, it matters for those around you. Over and over again, the Bible describes faith as a commitment to God and to his people. The picture of an, the isolated Christian simply is not a picture of, this, of what we find in scriptures. We were intended to live our faith publicly, even in this space, together. The gospel, the truth of the gospel is a public truth. But the next thing I want us to see also from this passage is that the truth of the gospel is singular in its work in our lives. It is taking us all to one place. Now, now part of what that means for us as a church is that the gospel is a unified message for us. That the truth of God is unified for us. You see, there's a connection, as we've seen, between what Paul's message is and the message of the other apostles that he's, in, if up to this point, been somewhat separate from. There's a consistency, there's a faithfulness, there's an ongoing connection among all of those who, who Jesus sent out to preach his word and to change the world through their message. The counsel they give him by verse, verse 10, you know, don't forget the poor, Paul says, oh, you know, how can I do that? Because that's already on my mind as well. His interaction with them was, was extraordinarily positive. It wasn't, well, you need to fix this point and this point, and, and you got this all wrong. He presented his message, and they said, that's our message. There's a unifying factor to the truth of the gospel in our lives. But what's important also to see in this text is that the gospel, while it, is, while it unifies us, the message of the gospel is not uniform for us either. That sounds a little strange coming out of my mouth that way. What I mean by that is that we are together under the truth of the gospel, 
but because of the complexity of life and our circumstances, we may not all look the same as that gets applied to our lives. It is not necessarily uniform. In Paul's situation, he says, look, Peter and others, whose name was Cephas, which is also listed there, it was the other thing that he was known by, the, the, God has called them in particular to reach, to reach the Jewish people. And that's where they've devoted their time. In fact, if you follow through the book of Acts, and you look at the, the, the sermons where the, where the message of God is being preached to Jewish believers or Jewish unbelievers versus those who are Gentiles, even in the book of Acts, written to, compiled by Luke, the messages will sound different, and that's why. That's what I mean when I'm talking about not necessarily uniform in its application. The message is the same, but the application of it often is different for, from person to person. And, and Paul acknowledges that here. Peter and others have been called to the Jews. I've been called to the Gentiles. So it will look different. And so even he, t- he references Titus, who was not Jewish by birth, was not forced to be circumcised because that no longer was held for God's people as the marker of who they were in Christ. The best way that I can illustrate this, and I'm not a science guy, so I'll let you forgive me and correct me later if I need to, but think of the gospel like, like a liquid, a substance that is liquid. The liquid doesn't change in its consistency, though it can change shape depending on the, the container that it's in. It can change shape. You, it may be divided up and you drop little droplets on the, on the floor. Each of those droplets is still that same liquid. It doesn't change because the consistency, the internal consistency runs throughout. That's a, a simple picture of what I'm trying to describe here. That the gospel unifies, but yet it is, at the same time, it is not necessarily uniform. Beloved, the gospel is big enough for all of us. The gospel is big enough to fit and to help us understand who we are in this world and who our families are and who our friends are, where we're from and where we're heading. It is because there is a singularity of the truth of the gospel that this actually works this way. And so for us as a congregation, what it means is this. Some of you, out of personal conviction, will never, ever touch a drop of alcohol. We need you as a part of this church. Even alongside those of us who say, I don't have a problem with consuming alcohol in moderation according to the teachings of Scripture. Both of those are are acceptable applications of the gospel, especially when they come by conviction and are pursued by faith in the Lord Jesus. Some of you homeschool your children. Some of you private school your children. Some of you public school your children. Out of very strong conviction. And I love that we can worship together. And it's vitally important to my wife and I, who have our kids in public school, out of conviction, that you're a part of this congregation with us. And we pray that the same goes through the other way as well. Because we believe that there is freedom of application of the truth of the gospel in that that practice. And I realize that some of you may even disagree with me in that, but I pray that we can find the unity of the gospel in these matters. It may apply to things like how you show up to church on Sunday mornings. Some of you are coat and tie kind of people, and some of you are shorts and a t-shirt kind of people. Let's not let that divide us, because it really isn't about the gospel. And I realize that some of us were raised thinking otherwise, thinking that what we wear to church is vitally important. And if that's your conviction, live it out robustly. Please live it out robustly. 
Please don't be ashamed of that conviction. And yet, can we not see the application of the gospel in our lives running different courses? Still unified, still working together. You see, unity without uniformity is difficult for the world in which we live. It can be difficult for Christians. You may feel the pressure of uniformity even walking through those doors on a Sunday morning. And I'll tell you, knowing the heart of the leadership of this church, that is never, ever, ever the intention. And they would fight you if you think that it is. That you have to look like everybody else who shows up here on a Sunday morning. I'm pretty sure they'd fight you if, they think it is, if you think it is. There has to be freedom in this for us. But unity without uniformity is difficult for our world because as much as our world talks about the strength of diversity, oftentimes where that lands is that we all have to look the same and act the same. And if we don't, you're in trouble. There is freedom in the gospel for us. We throw away unity in the name of truth and we run and hide. We demand uniformity as the only way. And yet the gospel, what Paul is talking about, is because of Jesus, beloved, we have freedom. We have, you know, we have freedom to disagree with one another. We have freedom to do things differently, to practice things differently by faith according to Scripture as the Lord leads us. Now, I feel like I need to caveat something here. I am not privy to the leadership meetings of this church. And I'm not bringing any of this up because I see rampant problems with this. So in case you're wondering, is he talking about me because Pastor Brian told him to talk about this? Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Beloved, the gospel does a singular work in our lives. It calls us together. And yet it says, we may not look the same, and that's okay. What I love about this passage, though, is actually where it ends up in this last section. Because what it tells us is that the truth of the gospel is also active for us as we live in community together. You've seen the movie The Sandlot about the boys playing backyard baseball. I know we've referenced it before. It's a great movie um, for a lot of different ways. But, but there's one of, the main, one of the main plot lines in the movie is the boys are playing baseball and they hit it over the fence where there's this giant dog. And they, they're scared to go get their ball back. And so one of the kids goes and grabs the ball off his dad's desk. You know, the ball that's got Babe Ruth's signature on it. And you can't help but, but, you know, he knows that it's a special ball because it's never been used before. It sits on his dad's desk and then they lose it and there's trouble and that's the point of the movie, I suppose. But just imagine yourself being a kid wanting to play ball and all the previous balls are over the fence with the giant dog that you're scared that's going to eat you if you go try to get those baseballs back. And there's this ball sitting on your dad's desk and the simple thought going through your mind is a baseball is not supposed to sit on somebody's desk. A baseball is meant to be thrown to be hit, to be caught, and to be chased. The baseball is not supposed to sit on the desk. It's meant to be used. And that's where this passage lands for us. Because part of the message of, of Galatians 2, 1 through 14, is that the gospel even applies to how you eat, and who you eat with, and what you eat. And you have to know that if the gospel can apply to your Sunday afternoon meal, then the gospel can apply to anything in any part of life. And in fact, that's what it's intended to be. Think about how it applies in this situation. You see, we, we tend to think of Christianity as simply a set of truths, a set of doctrines, which it is. But as, as we've seen already, it's a doctrine that's meant to impact us personally and actually change the way that we live and go about our lives. That's what we see in this text. The truth of the gospel is, is big enough to speak into any part of life. It's what we see in this, in this, in this section. 
What work we do, how we do it, our relationships, our entertainment, everything you do every day of your life from here on out, the gospel has application in That's what it's meant to do. It's not meant to sit on the shelf and look shiny. It's not meant to sit on the shelf and be your collection of books that you never open. It's meant to be brought down and carried with you every day of your life. It's what happens here. Because what, what happens here is the, those who are teaching the, the other gospel, as Paul calls it, though it's, he says it's not really another gospel at all because there's no good news in it. What Paul is saying is others came, showed up. And, and for a while, this message had gone out among these Jews and Gentiles who were living and working together and even eating together, which would have been anathema to the, to the hardcore Jewish, believer, Jewish people of the day. They were doing fine. They were all eating together. And then these, these outside folks showed up and people begin to think, what if they see me? Is word going to get back to Jerusalem that I'm eating with Gentiles? I can't have that. And so they begin to separate themselves. The leadership was doing this. And others were following suit. And Paul says the gospel applies here. Even to the point of publicly confronting one of the other leadership. Look at verse 14. And this is why I love this. It's how Paul speaks in verse 14. He says... But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's saying, Peter, we know each other. I've seen you. you you've, you've lived like a Gentile for a long time, though you were born a good Jewish boy in a good Jewish family. You've experienced the freedom in Christ, and now you're walking away from that and bringing others along with you. But do you hear what Paul says to him? Paul does not say, we've got to have a new rule about this, and we've got to figure out by committee what, what we're going to do in this situation. Paul's response is, this is not in line with the truth of the gospel. The message about Jesus is opposed to the way you're living your life. He's not setting up more human rules. He's not saying, we've got to dress differently, we've got to figure this out. He's saying, this is not in line with the truth of the gospel. It applies deeply to the situation. You see, beloved, it's not the case that this freedom means you can do whatever you want, anytime. Free to do what I want, any old time. Isn't that the old Rolling Stones song? I'm free to do what I want. Something like that. I'm getting it wrong, but it's something like that. It's not that the gospel never, never tells you no. It's not that the gospel never tells you you need to live differently because what you're doing is harmful to you. That's not this kind of freedom. This kind of freedom is the kind that says, Jesus entered your slavery to set you free. And to live any other way is actually to live in slavery. The gospel has come to set us free. The gospel is that thing by which we can confront one another in honesty, in vulnerability, in risk. You know, it's not the, hey, you did this and I, you said this thing and it really bothered me, though there may be a place for that. It's that the truth of the gospel is being rejected by the way that you live, is what Paul is saying to Peter. It's what we're called to embrace together. That somehow we're living out less freedom than what, what is ours through Jesus. The truth of the gospel is active. It is public, it is singular, and it is active. So how do we do this together? I don't know if you're following the news this, of this weekend, but something phenomenal happened yesterday in Vienna, Austria. 
You see, yesterday in Vienna, Austria, a marathon world record holder named Eliud Kipchoge broke the two-hour marathon record. He ran 26.2 miles in under two hours. It's never been done before. They tried two years ago and he was 25 seconds short. Or 25 seconds long, I suppose you would say. And so they spent two years planning and preparing and getting ready for what happened yesterday. And it happened. Now, the fact that a human being ran, well, the fact that a human being ran a marathon at all is a mystery to me. Um, but the fact that a human being ran 26.2 miles in under two hours, he was at 159.40.2, is a phenomenal human achievement and should be celebrated. But what you have to know is what went into this. Like I said, it took two years to plan. They picked a spot whose elevation changes made it basically flat. They had 42 pace runners that would switch out in this V formation to run with him to help him keep pace. 42 other world champion marathon type runners running with him. He had shoes that were designed by Nike um, called the, the Vaporfly Next, if I have that correct. You can't buy those, by the way. I'm guessing they would cost you more than your home multiple times over to purchase them. But, but Nike designed a shoe that would give him 4% more efficiency as he ran. They had laser pace, pacing lasers set up so that as the, as the group of guys ran alongside of him, they could watch and figure out what their pace was exactly so that they didn't have to waste energy speeding up at any point. They knew exactly how fast they were running at any point during this time. And you know what? They did it. It's, it's amazing to think that this actually worked. It's incredible human achievement. But to think this is the, the achievement of one individual is ridiculous. Because of all I just described to you, all that went into this happening, for years to get to this point where we could do this, it wasn't just Kipchoge running, but it was all that went into, the, into this happening. Beloved, we're called to run together. We're called to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive together. And in fact, that's such a great picture of, of how even such an achievement can only happen with a group of people helping it happen and making it happen. That's what we're called to be as the church because of the truth of the gospel. And yet I want to be careful to say even community is not enough for us to achieve what we're called to achieve and to live as we're called to live. We needed Jesus to enter into this world, as Paul says in the first chapter, to deliver us from this evil age, to deliver us from our own selfishness and our own sinfulness. You see, because left to ourselves, we want to see freedom as freedom from. Freedom from rules, freedom from constraints, freedom from institutions, freedom from anybody telling me what to do at any point in time. That's how we define freedom when left to ourselves. We promise ourselves that this will lead to happiness and contentment if we could only just be left alone and do what we want. And yet, the human, intent, the human tendency that we all know is to respond to any sort of constraint by casting it away, these structures. And then, but then what we end up doing, and we, we know this, is that when we cast away a certain amount of structures, we just build up other structures. Because we're committed to living for ourselves and to doing it ourselves. That's why community is not enough. Because we needed Jesus to enter this world from outside, so to speak, to enter this world, to deliver us, to set us free and give us the true freedom that only he can give us and indeed that he does give us. Well, and we need each other because the gospel is true. 
We need to live out the gospel to embrace it publicly, to know that it is, God is at work through it in our lives and that it is active and it is intended to be applied to everything that we do. And yet we have to know that the freedom that we have is ours, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And that's indeed what you have. Let's pray. Father, we mess this up. I mess this up on a pretty regular basis because we want freedom to be about us and you tell us that the true freedom is really about you setting us free. I pray that you would guide and shape and lead us as we seek to know this and live by your freedom. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.